All right, Team Pella, listen up. Thanks, John Kuhn. Customers love our products with limited lifetime warranties. Check out these big plays. Incredible innovations like blinds and shades between the glass. No interference on that play, Coach. And stylish windows with hidden screens that make game days a breeze. Can it get any better? It can. With monthly payments as low as $19 per window, $75 per patio door, and a free quote at PellaWI.com. Let's go. 6.99 Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. I have figured out how if for some reason your desire is to get, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 views on Twitter or whatever they call Twitter now, X, I, I, I've got advice as how to do it. All you have to do is put up a post saying that you're leaving your job and, and then people respond. Um, it's been it's been an interesting 24 hours since we, we announced my the, the fact that I'm going to be retiring at the end of the year. And we're not going to dwell on this over the course of the next two months. There's lots of stuff. But I, I did have just a, a couple observations, and we will take some walks down memory lane, I think, over the course of the next two months. But I have been... You know, doing the announcement and stuff wasn't hard because, as I said yesterday, I had come to the conclusion that it's it's just time to move on. And so, you know, like presenting this and the reasons and, and my thoughts and the thank yous, that that was kind of easy. What has not been easy for me over the last twenty four hours has been the absolutely incredible response that I have received, whether it's blowing up the text line or emails or on Twitter or, you know, people making phone calls or texting me, you know, sending me messages on my personal phone and stuff. I, I've been absolutely overwhelmed. and I don't know how else to say it. And I, I've heard from um, so many listeners over the years and, and friends and former former colleagues, you know, people we've worked with and former bosses. I've been hearing from former bosses from all over the country. And it's really been it's I don't even know how to respond as to how how gracious people have been. And I, I just wanted to take a minute and just say how much I, I very much appreciate it. And and I do sincerely mean what I said yesterday. I um this, this is it's a great job, but it's a job. Um, and for everybody who says, hey, we're going to really miss you listening on, on a daily basis. Trust me. I will miss you more than you will miss me. I, I just, I, I, I guarantee it. It's been absolutely a wonderful ride. I, I've also been, I, I just surprised, maybe, maybe shocked from from some of the the input I've gotten, including, in, including competitors. You know, um, I've, I have all, I travel around the country a lot, and I listen to talk radio in different markets. I will say that I believe the Milwaukee talk radio market is as vibrant as any market in the country. And, and I will stack up what we do in southeastern Wisconsin with the, the talented people that are here and the content. I will stack it up with anywhere in the country. And trust me, I mean, I listen to talk radio from all around th- this country. And I have always believed that, um, you, you know, talented hosts, and it doesn't matter whether you work for us or WISN or whatever, I, I have always believed that a rising tide lifts all boats. I, I've always believed that if you've got, you know, a, a good talk show host uh, and, and that 
helps attract people to spoken word radio. It's good for all of us because maybe maybe you, you tune in and you hear my show and you like what I'm doing. You say, hey, I, I never really thought about talk radio before. Well, that's good. So you like Wagner. Maybe you try somebody else out as well. So I've always I have appreciated that that vibrancy um, that, that's there. And I, I've always I, I viewed you know, all the people in this market is, is yes, I guess your competitors in the, the one sense. But at the same time, I always feel that we're kind of brothers and sisters in sound. And um, just specifically up to dial um, Jay Weber, who does the morning show on WISN, who I worked with when I was part time at WISN 28 years ago. And Dan O'Donnell, who does a morning show, midday show, um, who started at, at WTMJ and actually started. As a, as a part-time producer of all things, when I was doing the, the Saturday show, um, they've both been very, very generous in their remarks and stuff, and it's really been touching. And it's just, it, it, it reflects, I guess, the, I don't know, the, the community that is out there. It reflects the fact that I think, you know, we, we all appreciate and we all love what we do with spoken word radio. And um, I just very much appreciate it. So I appreciate when your competitors are saying nice things about you um, and, you know, all the, the feelings have just been incredible. And um, I uh, th- th- today's actually a little bit harder than yesterday because I've just been overwhelmed by the response, and I appreciate it very much. So that's my way of starting off to say thank you. Okay, now let's get right to the business of the program. I admit it appears that I have failed. There are certain things that over the course of the last 25 years have never made any sense to me, and I have argued about them. And I keep thinking that that someday the light bulb is going to go on and people are going to say, yes, it's time for us to get off our collective duffs and do something about it. I'll give you an example. The minimum markup law. You know, this is the Depression-era law that says that you have to mark up gas and other things. Never made any sense to me. Doesn't make any economic sense. Um, It's bad business. It's bad for consumers. It's bad for the state. But yet, you know, you've got some powerful lobbying interests who have blocked efforts to change that. Here is something else that has never made any sense to me. And the Badger Institute has a very, very interesting piece that they have posted. It's written by Ken Wysocki. It has to do with something that has never made any sense to me either. The fact that we are stuck, we are stuck in this never-ending battle of mandated emissions testing every two years. Now, let let me walk into this. Um, Beginning in 1984, the federal government put down mandates that were embraced by the state of Wisconsin that says because of air quality in the seven-county region in southeastern Wisconsin, people have to have their emissions checked. Now, you can remember in the beginning, this was done by the State Department of Transportation. And you can remember we used to have emissions testing stations all over the area. The one that I always used to go to was um, down by where Pottawatomie was. Now it's a brewery. But you, you'd have to go, and in order to renew your license plate and your tags, you had to go get this, this emission test. Now the Department of Transportation is kind of out of that business. They use private businesses to do it. The problem is a lot of private businesses don't want to do it because the remuneration rate is, is stupid low. I think I think last time I checked it was 2 bucks. Or something for every car. And so if you try to find places to do it, they essentially do it kind of as a loss leader because they don't make money. They don't make any money at all by doing the emissions thing, but they hope, 
if you come in and use their place to get the emissions tested, what might happen is you might come back when you need an oil change or, or something like that. But we, we have this requirement and this inconvenience that here, okay, I've got to, I can't just send my money, and it's only for the seven counties, uh, but it affects about 600,000 people. Now, when this happened to when our car, my, it was actually my wife's car, when it came up for the last time for, for emissions testing, and it was a, it's a 2020, and I remember I, I went in and I was talking to the guy, and of course it passed, and I said, I'm just curious, how many cars fail this? And he said, almost none. And I said, well, how many cars would you say made in the last 10 or 15? I said, first of all, in the last 10 years, how, how many cars fail? He said, almost none. He said, matter of fact, it, it, to the extent you get any car that fails, it is almost always going to be a car that's 15 years or, or older. But yet we all have to bring these in. According to the Badger Institute, um, from the beginning of this program in April of 1994 through um, through the last fiscal year, this program has cost taxpayers $271 million. $271 million. The Badger Institute reports that this program has been audited just once in 40 years, and that was back in 2002. So we, we've just been doing this over and over again, year after year after year, without having any sort of empirical data suggesting whether or not this program, which is an inconvenience to everybody, whether or not it makes any difference at all in improving air quality. Okay, so here's the deal. According to 2021, listen to these numbers. If you look at the Vehicle Inspection Program report, just uh, of all the vehicles tested, about 630,000, only 3.1% failed. Only 3.1% failed. So that was um, less than 20,000. On top of that, if you look at the failure rate, the number of cars made in the last 10 years that failed is less than 1%. Matter of fact, before you get any statistically significant number of failures, and even then it's going to be really, really small, it's got to be a car that was made over 15 years ago. So um, any of the late model cars, they just they do not fail. There's just not that problem with it. Moreover, there's no empirical evidence at all that that it is improving air quality at all. No studies at all suggest that this inconvenience and the cost and going and trying to track this down makes any difference at all. Like I say, vehicles older than 15 years admit admit most of the bad emissions that, that are out there. And vehicles older than 10 years make up the rest, even though this is a very, very tiny percentage of them. Which brings us to the question. Now, I understand that in order to get out from under this, Tony Evers would have to go to Washington and ask for a waiver. And that's in all likelihood not going to happen because even if it does absolutely nothing to make the environment better, Tony Evers is uh, is never, ever going to say anything or do anything that's going to create an issue with the environmental lobby. But to me, this is the ultimate, ultimate in virtue signaling 
The fact that if you live in the seven-county area, every two years, if you've got a car that was made, really, if you've got a car that's later than 2010, to make you go and get the emissions test is pretty much a complete waste of effort and spirit because, yes, you know, maybe there might be that occasional unicorn that ends up, you know, failing the test. But that one or two unicorns is not going to be enough to significantly affect air quality. Meanwhile, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people whose car will always pass this test continue to have to show up, go through the inconvenience, and we accomplish absolutely nothing. 855-616-1620. That is the old national talk and text line. I'm, I'm sorry. But this is just absolutely crazy. And whenever I talk about this, people say, oh, it's not that big a deal. Well, okay, first of all, it's a pain in the butt to have to go and figure out, okay, where can I go? Who, what's going to do this? How long is the line going to be? All right, that's number one. But number two, it costs the taxpayers of the state of Wisconsin money. And number three, and this is perhaps the most important thing, it accomplishes nothing. You know, if there was any statistical evidence suggesting that, hey, if you live in Milwaukee or you live in Ozaki County or you live in Washington County, the fact that, you know, you're driving a 2018 car, if there's any statistical evidence showing that going and having one of these emission tests makes air quality significantly better, I'd be willing to have this conversation. But there's no evidence at all that suggests this. This is complete and total virtue signaling, and it's way past time to end this 855-616-1620 we discuss and as a number of our texters are pointing out the, the emissions testing only applies to cars made after 1996 so if you've got some old clunker before 1996 um, where statistically it is most likely to be one of the cars that is polluting that that doesn't get tested at all if you wanted to have the emission testing program and you wanted it to make sense, you could at least make an argument if you said, okay, we're only going to apply this to cars that are 15 years old or older because the number of cars under the 15 years uh, that fail, it is statistically insignificant. And my point is it makes no sense at all to take half a million Wisconsinites every year and who have cars that are going to at least, again, the chances of your car that was made in 2015 or sooner failing one of these tests is slim to none. And and again, if you catch, you know, one out of 300,000, for example, is that worth the effort that everybody else has to go through and the expense? If you wanted to make an argument and say, okay, look, if you've got a car that's 15 years or older, you've got to go get an admission tested. Okay, we could have that conversation. But I continue to believe it makes absolutely no sense at all for somebody who drives a 2018 Toyota RAV4 for you to have to go and get it emission tested. It's not it's not going to fail. Or at least that's what the numbers show. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Dick in Grafton. Dick, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Dick. We've moved to Shano, but we've moved to Shano, but for 17 years we lived in Grafton and we had to have all of our vehicles emission tested. I discovered that if the check engine light is on, you shouldn't even waste your time going right. to get your test because they won't even check it. So the mechanic looked the car over and he says, oh, he says it looks like it's a, a O2 sensor in the exhaust. I said, okay, fix it. He said, you want, me, want to spend $800? 
No, I don't want to spend $800 to fix the O2 sensor. But how can I get the emission test? And he said, go to the auto supply store and buy something called Guaranteed to Pass. Okay. Have about a half a tank, half a tank of fuel, put the Guaranteed to Pass in, then come and see me and I'll reset your check engine light. And he said, go through five or six heat cycles of the car, bring it up to temperature and let it cool down, and then quickly go and get your emission test. <laughs> I did that, and I'm not making this up to Jeff, I did that on our Suburban for 12 years. That's six inspections. Wow. And it worked every time. So what we don't know, and I'm not trying to defend this program at all because I think it's crazy, but what we don't know is the cars that ultimately people went and had fixed and their emissions dropped or how big of an effect this is having on the sales of guaranteed to pass. Yeah. I, I, cause I, I gotta tell you, Dick, I've never even heard of, I, I've never even heard of this. So, I mean, no, thanks for coming. I, look, I don't know how many, but I, I guess that to me, that that's another argument for if it, if it's that easy to circumvent this, it, it's another, it's another reason why this particular program makes no sense. Look, I understand it's, it's this feel good thing, but don't you have to, don't you have to constantly and, and analyze stuff to determine if stuff works. Okay, you, you you come up with this idea in 1984 saying, okay, we think or we think that there's a problem with air in southeastern Wisconsin, so we think this is the solution. We've got to check emissions. Okay, so this is going to be our thing. Okay, wouldn't it make sense to say we're, we're going to we're going to test these theories to see if this works? Well, this program hasn't been audited since 2002. It hasn't been audited since 2002, so we have no way of knowing whether this makes things better, worse, or makes no difference at all. But you do look at the raw numbers out there, and again, maybe there's some people you know, on the fringes that are trying to figure out how to beat the system. But the general rule is, and, and you just can't argue with statistics, if the car is newer than 15 years, there's almost no chance that it is going to fail. If it's newer than 10 years, there's really no chance statistically that it is going to fail. So does it make any sense at all to spend all the money that we spend on this and inconvenience all these people who have cars, let, let's just even say that are newer than 10 years? You've got to go and you've got to get this test. What What is the purpose of this if you're only going to, let, let's say you catch five out of 400 or 500,000, and yet we all have to go through this. And it's becoming more and more difficult to find places to do it because, again, we don't, the reimbursement rate is so low, you need to find these garages that are, you know, willing to, you know, that are willing to do this, and fewer and fewer of them want to do it because it's not worth their time. Scott in New Berlin. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, hey Jeff. Um, yeah, you worked at a dealer for a short period of time. At the time, they were the state was paying the dealerships or whoever did it two bucks per car to do that test. Right. But here's something even more stupid. We bought a 2013 car last May that had less than 49,000 miles on it, real clean car. We bought it from a used car dealership, so they can't sell that car if it had problems and wouldn't pass and all that kind of stuff. So we bought the car. A few weeks later, we get a letter from the state you got to take it in for emission tests. I called them up. It's like, why? Well, how do we know the car's any good? I said, I bought it at a used car dealer. It's not like I bought it private property. I can maybe understand the rule then. Right. So I, sure enough, I had to go get it tested. Now, it's going to get need to get tested again next year because yeah. they do odd cars on even years. So we're going to have to get that car. That car will have been tested three times in 12 months. 
and it's got to pass every time. Absolutely. And it's like the, the state, I call, I told the state why, I mean, I took it, I bought it at a used car dealer. They couldn't sell me the car if it wouldn't pass. So why do I have to get it tested like a week later? Right. Well, they had no answer. Well, yeah. if, it's, if it's changes ownership, you have to test it. It's, it's like, I, right. You know, right, right. Here's, here's the history. No, you know, thanks for calling. See, and, and again, this is, it, it's the frustration. A couple of people are texting in and they're saying, well, this, this is a, a deterrence. Well, no, it, it's, it doesn't deter anything, you know, because the new cars, you know, are, are all going to pass. It, it's not like you have a situation where all of a sudden, you know, no Ford is going to pass, indicating, you know, that there's some sort of defect that's there. It, there's no deterrence about this at all. This is just one of these feel-good examples of virtue signaling. Now, I, I, if you think that this is important to do, and somebody was saying, well, you need to do this to get people from not driving clunkers on the road. Oh, okay, then you say if the car is more than 10 years old, you've got to have it admissions tested. If the car is more than 15 years old, you know, pick whatever that time is. Then I think you could at least statistically say, well, um, you know, still 95% of the cars that are 15 years old or older are going to pass. But you could at least make the argument then that we're going to get five out of 100 cars off the street. There's no way at all, using statistics, you can ever justify making everybody who owns cars, especially cars made, you know, within the last 10 or 15 years, there's no way you can justify the expense and putting people through this. It is nothing but virtue signaling. And if you are going to do that, I think at the very least, the federal government should be doing some documentation. Let's have some updates on this. All right, if my analysis and the analysis like the Badger Institute does, if this is if this is wrong, and there are a substantial number of cars that are, again, made in the last 10 years that are failing, all right, let, let's see those numbers. But everybody knows it's not out there. But again, it's just easier to keep inconveniencing people. And because in many respects, we're all sheep. Well, the federal government says that Tony Evers loves the environment. We all love the environment. But, you know, my only point is, don't you have to at least kind of look at stuff and say, does the program make sense or not? And I've been arguing for years, and this story today in the, from the Badger Institute just reinforces it, that this program has never made any sense at all. And to the extent it made sense, or there might have been a chance of it making sense 40 years ago, the data that we have over the last 40 years doesn't justify it. But yet we continue to do this because it makes us feel good. Give me a break. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. A number of our listeners are also pointing out that if you drive collector's cars, you know, those those don't have to go through the emission testing thing. Again, my, my point is, I, I just, I've always believed that things need to make sense. You know, the, the idea of just doing something because we've always done it or because we thought it might be a good idea or we wanted to try it out 40 years ago. And so here, here we have no evidence to suggest whether it was a good idea anymore, it's relevant anymore, but we're just going to keep doing it because we've always done it because it makes us feel good. That's what this emission testing thing is. It makes us feel good. A number of point, people are correctly pointing out, all right, what, what, what is the impact that this emission testing where, again, the overwhelming majority of cars are passing? That, that's just, and that's a good thing. But the, again, the chances are if you have a car that's less than 15 years old, you're, you're not going to fail in any sort of statistically significant number at all. How is that really making air quality better? And what, what about, 
I don't know. What about the junker cars that are on the road in Madison, for example? Why why aren't those being emiss- emission tested? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't we care about the quality of air in in Madison? Not that I'm advocating this, but shouldn't we care about the quality of um, air in in Eau Claire? Shouldn't we care about the quality of air in La Crosse? I'm just asking these different types of things. And again, we we don't have answers to this. Well, the EPA said it was a good idea 40 years ago, and of course, nobody wants to challenge that. Just Just give me a break. All right, let us switch gears. When I first started doing this show and doing talk radio a long time ago, uh, it was before we really had the Internet. And the the way that I would prepare for shows, let's say I was doing an afternoon show, um, I would would run out and I would buy newspapers. And, and I try to, I try to find, you know, I'd get, the, I'd get, you'd have the local newspaper, Journal Sentinel, and I'd find the Wall Street Journal, and I'd find the New York Times, and there was a, there was a newspaper box right by where I lived in Whitefish Bay that, that had the New York Post. And, and I, you'd, you'd find a bunch of newspapers, many as I could find, and then you'd scour through them, you know, looking for stories and different I- ideas. Now, the problem with that is if you found stories, you were really kind of limited as to how you could research them. But that's how you did it. You, you got, you got the hard copies of the newspaper, and and you tried to like put together how am I going to do this three-hour show? Then along came the internet, and the entire world of information opened up. And you weren't limited to, gee, can I find a couple newspapers that are out there, or can I do my own enterprise reporting? What you were doing is, hey, I've got this entire world that's out there. And so, for example, what I do now, and I know that there's some people who think, oh, you just, you know, there's no prep time. You just come in, open the microphone, talk for three hours. Well. Um, you know, maybe that's how some people do it, but I'm not good enough to do that. I mean, I spend hours, um, and I have a number of different sources that I go to to look for stories. And in, in many cases, it's it'll be like different perspectives on the same story. But some of the websites I go to are different newspaper websites from all across the country. Some are television websites. I've, I've got like independent websites that I'll go to. And you put this all together, and you put together the show. But But I mean, 30 years ago, 28 years ago, newspapers were a a vital spot, place of where I I got information. Now, not so much so. Although, I mean, I do go to newspaper websites and and look at things and get ideas, but but not so much so. As far as hard copies of newspapers, well, the, the world has completely changed because people do not get hard copies of newspapers that much anymore and i am willing to bet and i think the studies support this if you're under the age of, of 50 you know unless you're sitting in the quickie oil change place you know waiting for your car to get done you're you're, you're not reading the hard copies of newspapers hard copies of newspapers it, it's very expensive it costs of course you got to pay the people that are writing for them you got to pay the people to the extent you still have any editors, and then you have to, you know, send this off, and it has to get printed up, and then you've got the cost of delivering it. And the problem is with time frames, the the window is so narrow that, for example, and I don't mean to pick on the Journal Sentinel because they were very kind to me in a story they wrote and put it online about, you know, my leaving WTMJ. But the reality is the, the windows are so short that if it's if it's an evening baseball game, you're not going to get any of the scores. You're not going to get the score of the Tuesday night game till you see an article in Thursday's paper. Well, by that time, it is the ultimate in in old news. It's just the way these windows kind of work. And as a result of that, newspaper readership has become 
first of all, because of the competition, but also just because of the timing involved, it's become less and less relevant because the news, by the time it gets put into the paper and gets delivered in your mailbox, it's old news. And we live in a 24-7 news environment where, you know, if you want to know, hey, what's the latest going on in Washington? What's what's the latest with, is Jim Jordan going to be the next Speaker of the House? Well, you know, you can go on the Internet and, and you can have your answer in 10 or 15 seconds, which is why newspaper readership is is declining. There's a piece in urban Milwaukee that, that kind of breaks down from the perspective of a local newspaper. And again, I don't mean to pick on the Journal Sentinel because it, you, what, what's going on with them is is no different than what's going on with most newspapers across the country. But, you know, the, the piece by Bruce Murphy in urban uh, Milwaukee talks about the numbers. Let me j- just say this. Okay, um, the circulation numbers show that circulation, the average daily circulation of the Journal Sentinel in 2019 was 92,800, which included 7,762 electronic or digital copies, which I find staggering. That means that there's only like 7,000 people who are paying online to get their information. Now, that's what I do. I have a subscription, but it's an online subscription. I don't get the daily paper delivered. Um, this represented a nearly 50% drop from daily readership the paper claimed just over eight years ago. Each year, these numbers have steadily dropped. 2020, the number was down to 79,000. In 2021, it was 68,800. In 2022, it was 58,700. And in 2023, it was 47,567. That 47,000, that's the daily circulation. The, and of course that's, that's down dramatically, um, from, you know, where it was just a couple years ago. Uh, the number of people who subscribe digitally, like I do, 5,100, 5,152 to be precise, 5,000 people. And that's, that's it. And that's supposedly where the future of the newspaper is going to be. And again, I don't mean to pick on the local newspaper because what's going on at the Journal Sentinel is no different than what's going on at newspapers across the country. But you look at this and it just seems to me it's flat out not sustainable. How do you pay people to work at a place when the number of people who are paying for your product is declining at these kind of rates. And for what newspapers are trying to do, they're trying to push people over into digital. I mean, they, they want more people to do what I, what I do because they're at least getting some revenue in, but at the same time, they, they don't have the cost. You don't have to print a paper that you bring to me. But I just look at these numbers and I guess 5,100 digital subscribers, a daily circulation down to um, less than 48,000. And, and of course, that's dropped like a rock over the last couple of years. Is this sustainable? Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I don't wish the, the demise of newspapers. I, I don't. Um, and I, I still, I still get the Wall Street Journal delivered to my house every day and I get the New York Times on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday when I have some time to maybe sit down and, and, and read it in depth. But as a general rule, um, I'm not in the target demographic and, Again, for for people who are under the age of 50, now maybe under the age of 60, they're not buying newspapers and they're not willing to pay for the digital content. So what is the future of newspapers? 855-616-1620. Five years from now, 
Is, is there still going to be daily delivery of, of newspapers outside of maybe a couple of the big national papers, outside of the Wall Street Journal, outside of USA Today, outside of maybe the New York Times? But beyond that, for these local newspapers, how are they going to survive? Candidly, I just don't see it. 855-616-1620. We discuss. A breaking news story. There are reports that two American hostages taken by Hamas have been released. We'll do a follow-up on that. Um, Jeff, I turn 42 next week, and we still get the newspapers Wednesdays and Sundays. I like reading the paper, the paper copy of the newspaper. I don't, however, know anyone else around my age who gets a physical paper, so I, I recognize that this is not going to go on forever. Jeff, I'll be 72 next month, and I get the Racine Journal delivered every day. I'll be very sad if that ever ends. Well, I, like I say, 60 and older, you know, you're used to, I mean, I grew up with newspapers. I get it, but... That's that's not the younger generation. One of our listeners says, well, my, my mom is 91. She still gets it. Well, right. But that's if if you're marketing, here's just the reality. If you're depend if your business model depends on, hey, I'm going to sell my product to people who are 91. All right. That's not let me, let me put it like this. This is not that's not a growth area, I guess. Let's talk to um, let's see. Roger in Fredonia. Roger, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, here's my attitude. I'm not going to pay $2.50 an issue for a copy of the newspaper. Uh, it's just too much. And when you look at what you're getting, you're getting, as time goes on, less and less actual news in the paper. Mm-hmm. I easily and gladly get all my news by going online on my smartphone to the TV stations yep. and the radio stations. They have a presence online. Yep. I get all my news that way for free. Yeah, no, you're you're right. They, that and that that's the problem the newspapers have, and especially it's a vicious cycle because, okay, you're making less money, so you end up cutting things. So we're not going to have any as many reporters. We're not going to do local stories. We're not going to have courtroom reporters. We're not going to do any of that stuff. So there, there's less content. There's less reasons for people like you, Roger, to pay for it. I I get it. Kendall in Port Washington. Kendall, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, good afternoon. Uh, Good luck on your next life. Thank you, sir. I appreciate Uh, it. One of the problems that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel did was they moved their press operations to central Illinois. Yep. So that means the deadline for the reporters, something ridiculous like 4 in the afternoon. Yep. You never get any news, accent on new, uh, (laughs) in their paper. It's just old stuff that. The uh, editor even mentioned that, well, now they can look into more in-depth stuff. Well, I would like news, please. Right. Well, in, in sports, I mean, you get no, you know, if, okay, you know, it, it used to be, okay, if the ball game, if they're playing in California, you don't get a report on the ball game in the paper. But now there's no, there's nothing like that. Everything is a day and a half old. And it is, to your point, it is old news. Now, thanks for the call by the time they get around it. So, okay, why why do you want to read a story about a game that occurred two days earlier? Now, I understand, well, we've done an interview with the manager, so, but chances are you've heard that interview with the manager on WTMJ radio, or you've seen it on ESPN or whatever. It, it, and this is from somebody who, who grew up with newspapers. I, I just don't see how this model works, but these numbers, my God, 5,100 digital subscribers in this metropolitan market, and also including all the people who might want to keep in touch with Milwaukee from all across the world, and you've only got got 5,100 digital subscribers. I, I just, I do not see how this is sustainable. Back with more in just a minute. 
You know, a number of people are talking about the, the, the leftward turn, for example, the local newspaper, which I think is undeniable. But the, and, and I think there was a period of years where the local newspaper was not writing to a, a large portion of, of the audience and that, that turned people off. But candidly, I, the problems that are if affecting the local newspaper are not unlike the problems that are affecting, you know, other newspapers. The fact that, you know, it's just, People want the information, but they're reluctant to end up to pay for the the content of that. And as a result of that, the question becomes, how do you figure out a way to make money? The, the other thing is that you – well, and I mean I've, I've said I do this. I, I, I subscribe because of what I do for a living. You know, I, I have a lot of different newspapers that I read online, and I subscribe. The Chicago Tribune, the uh, L.A. Times, New York Times, um, and those those are ones that you have to pay for. And but but can't USA Today? But candidly, I'm one of those people that uh, you, you get these deals where they say, "Hey, you, you can have access to the paper for you know six bucks for six months." Okay, I sign up for that. Then they say, "Okay, now we want twenty dollars a month." No, I, I don't want it, so I cancel it. All right, that that's fine. So I paid six bucks, and inevitably, you know, sixty days later, they come back and say, "Hey, we've got an offer for you: six months for six dollars." Okay, I'll sign up. That's how I do it. That's how a lot of people do it as well. So. This revenue stream, how you make money out of this, I frankly, I just do not get it. Okay, when we come back after the top of the hour news, I call the topic, cry me a river. I will explain, we will discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. One of the things about announcing that you're retiring in a couple months is it, it's in some respects, it's kind of freeing. So, you know, when you get people that text you really stupid stuff, you know, you just kind of you can say, OK, well, uh, <laughs> that that's all well and good. Check back. You don't like this. Check back in 60 days and, you know, let me know how it goes. Samantha producing the show today. Um, do you know what tomorrow is besides Saturday? All right. Do you have any plans for tomorrow? You you do because you know you know what day tomorrow is. No, you're looking at me blankly. All right. Well, this is something to to attach to your significant other. Tomorrow is Sweetest Day, 2023. All right. There's got we have four people in the uh, producers booth, and all of them are going, oh yeah, we didn't know about that. Well, that's okay. I didn't know about it either. So, but it's this to me, it's the ultimate manufactured holiday, and I, I think, I mean, of course. Uh, of course, when you're married to my wonderful wife, every day is sweetest day. There, there's still question about that, but I, I don't think we, we do something like every night. I don't. I think tomorrow we do not have any sort of plans at at all. But but just just know that out there, fellows, that if you or your significant other is somebody who um, sweetest day is a big deal for, you might want to go out and figure out what it is that you're going to do because that's coming up. I'm just I'm here to tell you. Uh, avoid getting into any sort of problems. This is, um, again, I'm, I'm taking a retrospective look at things, um, and, and this is another one of these stories where, candidly, I find myself wondering what could have been. Strauss Brands, which is a, a Franklin-based meat processor, I mean, veal was, was their, their big thing, Strauss Brands announced that they plan to lay off nearly 200 employees and sell two of their product lines. Strauss, uh, Strauss Brands, by the way, is a, is a wonderful, 
wonderful, wonderful company. Apparently, um, they alerted the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development about a week ago about their intention to permanently lay off workers, most <clears throat> who are based in their Franklin facility on North 60th Street on or about December 10th. The reduction is going to impact about 195 employees in Wisconsin, with most working in Franklin. Um, the company said it must make up to 127 of the staff cuts permanent. Um, so, you know, they're they're talking about this. And, you know, it's an unfortunate sort of thing. Apparently what Strauss is looking at doing is they're looking at selling off some of their brand lines. I I bring this up because I can't help but wonder if some communities around here had had more foresight, whether or not this would be a different story. If you remember Strauss Brands, Strauss Brands originally, a couple years ago, wanted to go back and they wanted to move into the Century City Business Park, kind of on Capitol Drive, which is in an economically challenged area. They've been trying to get businesses there for years and years and pretty much have been failing. And so what Strauss Brands was going to do is they said, hey, you know, we want to build a processing facility. Um, You know, this was back in 2019. We're going to move our facility there. We're going to be bringing a couple hundred jobs to the area, and we're, we're going to help revitalize that sort of area. And this is an area, again, if you know the Century City place on Capitol Drive, it, it's an economically depressed area. It's landlocked. It's not attractive because there's it's, it's difficult. It's difficult freeway access and things like that. But Strauss was willing to make the investment in the community. And then you had a couple idiots, including the alderman for the area at the time. And, yeah, he was an idiot who decided, oh, well, despite the fact that these are good paying jobs and they're union jobs and there's all this stuff, we we don't want we don't want a slaughterhouse there. And they made this position without ever without ever going to like the, the Strauss facility in Franklin. And, and I said this at the time. And this was uh, here's the line. It was making my head explode. Because, you know, when, when you, they think, oh, this is a slaughterhouse. Well, you, you think of slaughterhouses and you think of the, the old 1910 book up by Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, and stuff like that. Modern meat packing plants aren't like that at all. And you could have gone to the Strauss plant in Franklin and you would not have been able to tell the meat processing part of it from like a box company, you know, two two doors over. You just wouldn't have it. But you had these neighbors. Um, oh, this is going to be a slaughterhouse. And, and they had a couple of people who inflamed the community. And then there was this pressure. And so they said, oh, we don't want this. We don't want a slaughterhouse. We're going to turn our back on a couple hundred good paying jobs and a chance to revitalize this area. And so there was getting to be a controversy. And the folks that run Strauss collectively and understandably said, OK, you don't want us. Fine. All right, we'll we'll pull out. And so that 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 area continues to be, you know, a moonscape uh, to this day when they would have had the opportunity to have a few hundred jobs. The next year, Strauss tried to expand again. They wanted to move into a 152,000 square foot facility in Franklin. And you, you got the same NIMBYs, people in Franklin who came out and said, well, you know, we, we think this area, it's supposed to be residential, and even though there's plenty of room, et cetera, et cetera, we don't, we don't want this there. And they, they formed this group, and these NIMBYs decided to, they ended up litigating over this, and ultimately Strauss said, okay, fine. 
You don't want us here. We're not going to expand. So the jobs disappeared in that. And back in uh, February of 2022, Strauss said, okay, if you don't want us, we're going to drop, we're going to drop the proposal to do this expansion. And they ended up selling the parcel to, um, to like Verizon, <laughs> like a, a company that, that does Verizon. So it'd be t- cell phone towers or whatever. But so now you're in a position where they're saying, okay, we're, we're, we're selling product lines and people are going to lose their jobs. Now I don't know. I don't know for sure that if if they would have been able to expand like they wanted in 2019 into Century City. I mean, I don't know that in 2023 they wouldn't have been in the same situation. I don't know for sure that if they had been able to make the expansion that they wanted to make in 2019 and 2020 in Franklin that, you know, they, they wouldn't have been in the same position now. But I, I, I got to think that for some respects, if they had been able, if the people that run Strauss had been able to expand their businesses as they, they chose and were going to make the investments and the commitments and building the facilities, et cetera, et cetera, maybe, just maybe, they might have been less inclined to sell their, their product lines. Um, maybe, just maybe, even if they did sell their product lines, at that point in time, you know, you, you'd have the, these investments and this infrastructure would be there that whoever bought them would be maybe more inclined to keep those buildings. I don't know for sure that that would have happened, but this is one of the big what ifs that's out there in the area. What if, what if the city of Milwaukee, and I'm talking about the aldermen that represented the area and some of the loud mouths in the community that decided to kill this, what if they had had a little foresight you know, what could have happened in Century City if Strauss had moved there? Is it possible that you might have had, you know, a, a real job development source in that area? Now, we're never going to know because they killed it and Strauss pulled out. What would have happened, you know, in Franklin if they'd been able to expand and get that facility for the 152,000 square feet? Maybe again, like I say, they're in the same position they would have been. They would have sold. You would have still had the job layoffs. But I'm going to tell you, in both those cases, Franklin did the community no favors, and the city of Milwaukee certainly did itself no favors. We're going to always wonder what could have been. When we come back, cry me a river. I can't take I can't take it anymore. That was this is actually a first for the Wagner show. I think in all the years we've been doing this, I don't think we've ever used Justin Timberlake as bumper music before. Um, but that is Justin Timberlake in the song Cry Me a River, which was written about supposedly about his breakup with Britney Spears. I, I thought that's 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 it. Man, have you seen that stuff with Britney Spears lately where she's like dancing in her panties with the, with the knives and doing that stuff? Uh, that, that's probably not a bad breakup there. I mean, you know, it's just like, huh, okay, what could possibly go wrong with that? Dancing around, taking TikTok videos of yourself, dancing in your panties with, like, butcher knives and things like that. Hmm, I want to wake up next to that girl. Okay, um, here is the Cry Me a River story. So we have talked in the past about the, the travails of U.S. Army Private Travis King. Matter of fact, I think that might have let off the 1 o'clock news. Travis King is the 23-year-old guy from Racine who has just returned to the United States. He is the one who went 
AWOL. You will recall he was in South Korea and um, he had been in a South Korean jail for doing all sorts of stuff. And they decided they were going to ship him back to I believe he was coming back to, to Texas. And he was probably, you know, going to be you know ushered out of the military or things like that. He thought it was a good idea to once they dropped him off at the airport in South Korea, instead of getting on the plane, he he went AWOL and he hopped a bus went up to Panmunjom, which is on the, the border between North Korea and South Korea, and then he defected. <laughs> he went went to North Korea. Okay, you know, this is a real, you know, real good idea. He, he goes to North Korea, and then it becomes sort of this international cause celeb that he's in North Korea. Um, so he, he's, ended, he's detained in North Korea, and then what ends up happening is after – Oh, I don't know, a bunch of, what, a month, month and a half, North Korea pretty much decides that they don't want him, <laughs> other because they don't think there's any propaganda value or whatever. So 71 days after entering the country, he was expelled. So they, they give him back to us. So what happens is they put him on the plane. They, they now send him back to the United States. But you've got a soldier who has gone AWOL. All right, well, the news that's coming out is that yesterday – he has been charged in military court with multiple offenses, including desertion, assaulting other soldiers, and child pornography. Um, let's see. The charges against Private King um, include desertion for crossing into North Korea. Uh, the document also details charges of punching an officer in the head, kicking a staff sergeant in the head in October of 2020. The child pornography charge relates to his activity on social media platform Snapchat, where he is accused of soliciting a minor to post partially nude photos. And we wonder why North Korea didn't want this guy. So anyhow, they, they bring him back, and now he, he's facing these charges. The, the charge of desertion carries up to three years' confinement. That is the most serious charge. So, okay, he's now got an attorney. I'm looking at the story. The attorney's, you know, giving interviews here. Let me, let me see. This is, um, this is it. His spirits are okay. He's a 23 year old man. He's been through a lot and he's going through a lot. Um, okay. The attorney says she has grave concerns that he will be okay. He's being held in pretrial, uh, confinement. Um, the lead attorney says the conditions there are horrible, and it basically amounts to putting him in solitary confinement right after he's returned from captivity. Um, captivity. Uh, the attorney says uh, there are longstanding U.S. interests and policies regarding how we treat our soldiers when they return from captivity. Basically, we've got a code of conduct, and a lot of these things they say we want soldiers to do all they can to try to back, be back home. And this is really an aberration in this case where the Army said, you know what, we're just going to hoover up everything you can, investigate as hard as we can, throw it all against you, and see what sticks. This is really not the way we've handled before our soldiers when they've been held in enemy captivity. Okay, now let me just stop there for a second. Why was this character held in North Korea? Was he captured? No. <laughs> was he kidnapped? No. He defected. He fl he fled. I, when I hear captivity, I think, hey, you're a prisoner of war. 
This guy wasn't a prisoner of war. This guy went AWOL. He defected to North Korea. North Korea doesn't want him, and they sent him back. So now we get this story. Oh, this is terrible. I can't believe that they're holding this guy. And uh, no, they're throwing all these charges against him. Which brings me to the title of the segment. Cry me a river. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Uh, The maximum penalty, my understanding, is for this desertion charge is three years. And I don't think that that's out of the question. You cannot have soldiers who do what this guy did. And I'm sorry, I'm I'm sympathetic to all sorts of, of things that people find themselves in. But any problems that Travis King, any problems that Travis King experiences are because of stuff that Travis King did, whether it's assaulting officers, soliciting child pornography, or deciding he thought it was a good idea to go AWOL into, of all places, North Korea. 855-616-1620. If he is convicted, and again, you're innocent until you're proven guilty, but in this particular case... I don't think there's too many extenuating circumstances behind what happened here. This isn't a whodunit or a what was done. If he's found guilty, I I think this is one where you do throw the book at him. You cannot have soldiers deserting. 855-616-1620. Are you sympathetic to Private King? We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. You know this. Okay, so this Travis King, this guy from Racine, who gets himself in all sorts of trouble in South Korea, ends up in a South South Korea huskal for a little bit. He's looking at charges that he assaulted officers. They're investigating him for soliciting a minor for child porn. But the, the big thing is he decides to go AWOL, flees the airport, hops a bus, gets up to Panmunjom, and then defects. And, and so, yes, he, he's held in North Korea for 71 days. We don't know what happened in North Korea for 71 days, but he went to North Korea voluntarily. I, the, the attorney for him says, oh, he was held in captivity. Well, okay, to, to me, again, when I hear captivity, I'm thinking, all right, you're a prisoner of war or you're a hostage. He was none of that. He went to North Korea voluntarily. Now, he might not have liked what happened to him when he got to North Korea. Gee, who could be possibly surprised by that? But now he's come back. Now he's facing a number of charges. But the most significant one is desertion, which, if convicted, could carry up to three years of confinement. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. I don't apologize for this. I think he gets every darn day he deserves. Jeff, Travis King was running because he got caught with child porn. He then claims the military is racist to cover up his tracks, and the media goes after this like catnip. Charge this guy with everything. Um, Yeah, Jeff, I'm sympathetic to King, but actions have consequences. The fact that his mom is trying to blame his desertion on the Army to me is absolutely mind-boggling. Um, huh, there you go. Jeff, I think the most amazing thing is that there are attorneys who would try this tactic of sympathy knowing the full story themselves. Well, again, I, I look, I, if, this, if this was somebody 
who was held in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. You're, you're in the Hanoi Hilton, and you're there for three or four years, and finally at the end of the Vietnam War, you are returned, and the military decided, you know, right before you were captured as a prisoner of war, you know, we were going to bring you up on charges of insubordination or something. If the military was pursuing that, I would say, really? But that's not what happened. To the extent the guy found himself in a bad situation in North Korea, it was because he, wait for it, deserted into North Korea. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good, thanks. What do you think? Yeah, I think they need to find the big, biggest book they can and throw it at him. Um, first of all, he committed crime, he assaulted his officers, and then he deserted. All those things are not um, good for a soldier to do, obviously. Um, you need to set an example with him, and um, it should be as harsh as possible under the law. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I just look at this and I think, what what are we what are we missing here? You have a guy who was obviously a problem for the military. I mean, he got himself in trouble in South Korea for getting into fights and things like that. Apparently, let's you know, you got the child pornography stuff. I don't know about that, but you've also got the assaulting the officers. So he he wasn't it wasn't like this was a great soldier to begin with. And then he makes the inexplainable decision to think things are going to be better for him in North Korea. You, you go over, you go over the hill. All right, that's fine. But then when the hill sends you back, you're, there's consequences. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And you know, the fact that he's uh, playing the race card too, he should get something for that as well. Um, yeah, no, thank, thanks. Well, that, that that's it. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, again, that that's kind of the, the explanation. Oh, this was terrible in the military and things like that. Okay, well, if your reaction to I don't like being in the military is I'm going to assault superior officers, I'm going to get in fights in South Korea, and then I'm going to defect to North Korea. Well, I, you know, I, I think the most interesting thing is it's clear that North Korea didn't even want this guy. Because, you know, if if he had something of value, you know North Korea would not have sent him back. But this was North Korea sending him back. In any event, I, I just I guess what sort of irritated me was I'm reading this attorney and he's talking about, oh, this is a terrible way for the military to treat people who've been held in captivity. The only captivity that was involved here was because of, you know, what he ended up doing. Dennis in Milwaukee. Hi, Dennis. Jeff, you know, I agree with you. He deserves everything he gets and and doubles, okay? But I think one thing that I haven't heard anybody talk about at all is the Army had a hand in this whole debacle, and no one has been saying anything about that. This guy was in a cell in South Korea. The Army knew that they were going to have him arraigned once he was released and supposed to jump on a plane back yeah. of his own volition. That's like asking the, the you know the Kia boys to turn themselves in for stealing cars. <laughs> yeah. Of course, of course he's going to bolt. I mean, who knew he was going to go to North Korea to do it? But I mean, come on, I mean, yeah. let's get real. There should have been at least a CID or MPs there to meet him as he came out of that cell, put him on a transport, and back to the states where he would have been arraigned. And none of this would have gone on. Yeah, Dennis. I, thanks. For, I by the way, I, I don't disagree with you, and I, I think that's a. That, that's a separate question, but I think it, it is a fair question that if, if you're, okay, you've got somebody who, again, is being sent back for discipline. 
is it really the procedure that you just let you leave him at the airport and and trust to his own devices that he's got to get on that plane and then voluntary report? That is a very very fair question, and I think it, it's something that people should have to answer because that's always never made any sense to me at all. But as far as Private Travis King, he ends up get convict, getting convicted and and spends oh, another two or three years behind bars. I'm not going to cry a river at all because. Well, consequences do have actions. Play stupid games, and I can't think of a stupider game than defecting to to North Korea. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. It's WTMJ's Debbie Lazaga for Comfort Awnings. You've heard me talk about the wonderful new retractable awning the team at Comfort Awnings installed at my home. Now I can have all the cookouts and get-togethers in my backyard with some extra shade and relaxation for my guests. Comfort Awnings is a local family-owned company in Burlington. It provides expert installation in southeast Wisconsin and northern Illinois. Right now, you'll receive a free motor with the purchase of awnings or screens until the end of October. Call 414-AWNINGS for a free estimate or visit ComfortAwnings.com. At Blaine's Farm and Fleet, we've helped hunters gear up for the season for over six decades. So as you prep for this year's hunt, shop unbeatable deals on supplies to make your trip successful. Like 40-pound bags of Easy Heat wood fuel pellets, just $4.99. 42-megapixel Moultrie trail cam kits, only $69.99. While you're in for hunting gear, save 8 bucks on select bags of Iams dog food. And a 2.5-ton Laren floor jack with case is on sale, $64.99. Find value at Blaine's Farm and Fleet. It's David Nason from WTMJ's The Fix-It Show here with Chris Mancuso, owner of Accurate Basin Repair. Hi, Chris. Hey, David. Courage, honor, and integrity. That is what I brought over to Accurate Basin Repair Team following my 25 years of proud service as a Milwaukee firefighter. This is the same foundation that Accurate is built on. As a home inspector, I trust Accurate Basin Repair for all your basement and waterproofing needs. They're not just good, they're Accurate. accurate. Learn more at AccurateBasementRepair.com. When big national banks make a decision, it requires many emails, phone calls, and plenty of video conferences from around the globe. When we make a banking decision, we do it over a cup of coffee in our office. Finding a local bank that's passionate about the community and knows your name is hard to find these days. Good morning, Diane. Welcome back. The search is over. Waterstone Bank, proud to be your local bank for over 100 years. Love your bank as much as we love this community. Waterstone Bank, Waukesha, Milwaukee, and Washington County. Member FDIC. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. My advice, get out while the getting's good. Now, there are several just stories that, that bring this point to bear. First of all, if you are an American citizen, or even if you have dual citizenship, you have no business being anywhere near Russia right now. Now, we, we, we've seen these stories before. You saw it play out with Brittany Kreiner, the WNBA player, who made the decision that she was going to fly to Russia right before they started to invade Ukraine. Everybody knows the story. She had a, a very, very small quality, quantity of hashish oil that she stupidly either put in or left in her luggage. But it, it's, it was a small thing. She was grabbed. She was held as a political prisoner, and they were able to, you know, essentially – 
get get the Biden administration to ransom ransom this woman by releasing the merchant of death in exchange for her. But we we understand how it works in Putin's Russia that if you are if you're an American citizen, you you know, they're going to grab you. The latest example of this, the Washington Post is reporting it. Russia detains radio journalists accused of being a foreign agent. Um, This is from Latvia. Russian authorities have arrested an editor for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, an American news outlet based in Prague and financed by the U.S. government, accusing her of collecting information about the Russian military that could damage the nation's security. Um, the editor holds dual U.S. Citizen and Russian citizenship. So this is one of these deals. She's a dual citizen. She had traveled to Russia for family reasons. Her detention Wednesday in Kazan, Southwestern Russia follows the arrest of the Wall Street reporter Evan Gershkovich, a U.S. citizen who was seized by Russian agents in March and charged with spying. And then the Washington Post story goes on to talk about how her arrest highlights the continuing dangers for journalists traveling in wartime Russia and operating in an environment in which senior officials have described their work as part of an information war against Moscow. Then it goes on to talk in detail about how they grabbed her. But here, here's the bottom line. She made this decision to voluntarily go to Russia. Now, she does hold dual Russian citizenship, and they grabbed her. And they're holding her, and they're probably not going to let her go for the near future, which, again, underscores that this whole point of, you know, making the decision, if you've got U.S. ties and journalist or not, that that doesn't matter. Russia doesn't care. Making the decision to go to Russia is a very, very bad decision because it's not like the United States, and there's not a presumed innocent thing, and there's not constitutional rights. Russia is going to grab you, and they are going to hold you. All right, so from her position, it was don't go. All right, the other story is get out while the getting's good. Uh, Yesterday, the State Department urged Americans to make plans to leave Lebanon as soon as possible. Um, earlier this week, the um, they put out a notice, the State Department, telling they, they issued essentially it's a security warning which advises Americans that um, you, you want to be on watch because of what's going on. But they've essentially told people in Lebanon, if you're an American in Lebanon, get out. We recommend that U.S. student citizens leave while commercial options are still available. We recommend that U.S. citizens who choose not to depart prepare contingency plans for emergency situations. Now, of course, um, they've also issued a warning telling Americans don't travel to Lebanon because of the unpredictable security situation related to rocket missiles and artillery exchanges between Israel and Hezbollah. Okay, so for people who don't know the geography of, of the region, Lebanon is to the north of Israel. Lebanon... Um, well, Lebanon has Hezbollah, which is an Iranian-backed military force, which is committed to the overthrow of Israel and the extermination of all Jews. So uh, you've got Hezbollah, which is actually a more powerful military force um, and, and a better trained military force than Hamas, which tends to be just, just uh, flat, flat old, uh, plain old-fashioned terrorists. You know, Hezbollah is a different military force. So, I mean, and Hezbollah operates with impunity in Lebanon. So what the State Department is saying, don't go to Lebanon. 
And secondly, they are saying to Americans that are in Lebanon, look, we don't know what's going to happen, but right now you can still get out of Lebanon, so get out. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I understand it, it, in some respects it's, it's easier said than done. You know, you've been living, let's say you've been living in a country for five or, or ten years or 15 years, and you've got roots and you're dug in in this fashion, and, and maybe you've got family that are over there or whatever. But when the U.S. State Department says, look, we know what's going on here. This is a volatile situation. This can completely go to you-know-where in a matter of moments, and and the State Department says, get out. All right, is there any excuse for staying? 855-616-1620. And if you do make the decision to stay, is it pretty much on you what's going to happen? Um, we, we've seen Hamas taking hostages, right? If, if you decide, and again, I, I hope none of this happens. I hope cooler heads prevail. But if after the State Department says, get out, you make the decision that you are going to stay and you get grabbed up by Hezbollah or whatever, is it on you? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. The breaking news story is that Hamas has apparently released two American women that it was holding as hostage. I, I believe that there's still other Americans that are being held and you know, close to what, like 200 Israelis that were taken in the attacks a couple weeks ago. Uh, but, okay, Lebanon, which is to the north of Israel, uh, but shares, shares a border. Lebanon, which is where Hezbollah operates. And right now, everybody's trying to make sure that Hezbollah doesn't decide to get into this. That's one of the reasons why you've got the U.S. carriers that are in that particular area. But um, the State Department has said, hey, if you're an American living in Lebanon, well, how can I put this nicely? Get the hell out. That's what they're saying because they cannot guarantee your safety. They can't guarantee that there's not going to be some sort of, again, war between uh, Hezbollah and Iran, Iran, Israel that's going to break out. They can't guarantee, they can't protect your safety. They can't, didn't they, I think they might have closed the U.S. Embassy. They can't guarantee that they're going to be able to get you out. And as we've seen, you know, some of these crazy radicals, they're, they're taking prisoners. They're beheading people. So my question is, if having been told to get out while you still can, because there still is a commercial exit, you can still take commercial aircraft and things like that out, if people, for whatever reasons, make the decision to stay, I don't mean to be heartless about this, but you're 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 on your own. Um, as far as I'm concerned, Jeff, you couldn't pay me to leave the U.S. anymore. I've thought that way for a year. These people are, um, you know, the people that, that stay are idiots. Well, I mean, that might be a little harsh. I, I understand. In some cases, you've got people who perhaps you've been in Lebanon for years and things like that. But maybe this is one of those times where, you know, I'm going to come back and visit friends in the United States and just hang out for her for a while and see see what the next couple weeks or the next couple months um, bring which I think is a, a very, very reasonable position. Jeff, whatever happened to common sense and accountability? If you are abroad and something happens to you, as you would say, go with God. What don't you understand? Get out in capital letters. Jeff, the minute you leave the U.S., you better be trans- you better be prepared at any time to get out of wherever you want and get back here. You're a visitor as long as you live there. To me, it's no different than staying in your house in Florida with a hurricane coming. They told you well in advance to get out, so get out or face what could happen to you. To me, it's that simple. Steve in Oak Creek. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello, and I would agree that if the State Department says get out, you better get out. And if you don't, then it's your responsibility and you suffer any consequences if there are some. 
other news reports have also said that Hezbollah has 100,000 rockets prepared to rain on Israel, which is just incomprehensible to imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Israel's got that Iron Dome, but but this is going to, you know, this would certainly test that. But yeah, Hezbollah trained military forces, and you know very well that if Hezbollah does that, you know very well that Israel's going to retaliate. And that's part of, I think, the reason the State Department is saying there's a a real chance that if if things go south, and they could go south, you're going to be in the middle of a war zone. Who wants to be in the middle of a war zone? Yeah, absolutely agree. It's just it's going to get crazier. Yeah, no, Frank. Thanks for the call, and and and, it, and and hopefully cooler heads will prevail. Hopefully things will simmer down. But if I'm an American citizen in Lebanon right now, and the State Department tells me get out while you can, I'm getting out while I can. Now maybe I'm I'm hoping that all right, uh, I'm not going to have to. I'm not going to have to if I if I love living in, in Lebanon. I'm hoping maybe that. I'm going to be able to come back at some point in time in the hopefully near future and that nothing happens, that there's no rocket assaults and that you're not in this situation. But there, there's no guarantees of this. And so, first of all, you're, you know, it's like, are you going to stay in the war zone? That's number one. But number two, are you going to be at risk of being taken hostage or whatever? Because we know that that's the type of stuff that happens. And if you're an American in Russia right now, I think you're out of your mind. I, I just I flat out think you're out of your mind because you can be grabbed off uh, off the street at any hour of the day or night. The secret police can come into your house. They can grab you. They can accuse you of being a spy or whatever. And, you know, there's there's not too much recourse in the case of, you know, being in the Middle East right now, uh, specifically Lebanon, which, you know, has this huge presence of Hezbollah. It, if, if you want to stay. That that's fine, but you have to understand that we might not be able to come and get you out. I mean, there's there's no question about about it, and maybe that's one of the times that you decide, hey, I'm going to come back with friends or whatever. One of our texters is saying, well, what are they supposed to live on? Well, I, I don't know. Clean out your bank account or or whatever. That's that's not the issue. It's kind of like saying, okay, well, when there's that hurricane coming and you want to evacuate, how are you supposed to, you know, what are you going to live on? You're really going to leave your possessions? Yes, get out of there because your safety is more important. That's when you call friends and say, can I stay with you on your couch or whatever? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you are a fan of former President Donald Trump, I can't tell you how bad this news is, but it, it's it's not good. Um, uh, the, the, the Georgia case, which is the case that's brought by the district attorney in Fulton County, which is, is Atlanta. Um, and this was I, I always thought this this case was was a stretch. But one of the things that happens when when you charge lots of people is the it, it's really expensive. If you're a defendant, it's really expensive to mount a defense, you know, and so you can in some respects you can you can win, but you can lose. Even if you you go to trial and you you end up getting acquitted, what ends up happening is you have huge legal bills. Um, Rudy Giuliani, and I, I, I take no position on whether he's guilty or innocent. I mean, he's he's heading for bankruptcy because he's looking at over a million dollars in legal bills all, already. So Sidney Powell, she's one of the she was one of the people who was ubiquitous in the aftermath of the 2020 election. She was, you know, on TV all the time, 
Um, and she was one of the the principal architects, or at least the person that was on TV spouting a lot of the, I think, the more crazy conspiracy theories that were being advanced to try to argue why the election had in fact been stolen. Well, okay, Sidney Powell um, was one of the people who was charged in connection with that, that Georgia case, you know, charged in the racketeering case and things like that. She has cut a deal. She is pleading guilty to misdemeanor charges. So first of all, it's going to be a misdemeanor, not a felony. My guess is a misdemeanor conviction probably even lets her keep her, her law license. On top of that, she is um, the deal she's cut um, guarantees that she will not get jail time. In open court, she admitted to orchestrating a scheme to access voting equipment in a rural, jury, ju- rural jur- Georgia county in hopes of substantiating conspiracy theories that the voting machines were flipping votes. So she's pled guilty to uh, a misdemeanor uh, charge in connection with election interference. Okay, that's all well and good. But she's also agreed to cooperate against Donald Trump and others. Now, I don't know what the significance of that cooperation would be. I don't know if she's got any sort of great information. But now you have somebody that's in the quote unquote so-called conspiracy who actually had meetings with Trump, et cetera, et cetera, who would be in a position to testify what the results were. Don't know how bad this is. But when you have co-defendants who are, you know, flipping No, that's not great. In addition, it seems to me, and this is just outside looking in, that the district attorney in Georgia pretty much gave away the store. I mean, these went from multiple felony charges, you know, carrying decades in prison to now it's a misdemeanor charge with a recommendation of of no jail. That would suggest to me that um, she's got some good information and that um, at least the, the prosecutor, if the big fish is Donald Trump, the prosecutor thinks that by having her testify against him, she'll help um, her case against Trump. Don't know that for sure. But if you're a defendant, it's never really and you're the one that they're really going after. And he is the one they're going after. It's never really a good thing when one of your co-defendants flips. OK, we are going to lighten it up in the next hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I, I know I promised lighter su- subjects, but I do have a couple comments on, on what's going on. This dysfunctional stuff happening in Washington, D.C., the, the inability of Republicans to agree on somebody to, to be the speaker, which, which is, of course, a complete and total embarrassment. But there, there, is, there is a subtext to this. One of the things that's playing out is the, the whole notion of what goes around comes around. And I've really been, I guess, thinking a lot about that over the course of, of, of the last you know, couple of days. Jim Jordan, who is he? He's wanted to be the House Speaker for the longest time. Jim Jordan came to Washington. Um, he was elected to the House. I want to say it was 2007. He was part of the Tea Party movement, and and since he got there, he has been well. Um, you know, his, one of his colleagues described him as a legislative terrorist. He has been one of the the these hardcore people <clears throat> who have been largely unwilling to compromise for the last 15 years. And in some respects, they have they have held the Republicans, the rest of the Republicans. They've kind of held them hostage. Okay, you know, we're not going to agree to this 
or this or this unless you do absolutely what it is that myself and a handful, a relatively small handful of my compatriots want. You know, and he's affiliated himself with the Donald Trump wing of the party, but he, he is – Figuratively speaking, he's a bomb thrower. He's been a bomb thrower for years and years and years. So he wants to be the Speaker of the House. And there's a lot of people who believe that he was one of the folks who orchestrated the the demise of Kevin McCarthy because a number of the people that supported uh, that that uh, were, were in essentially in his camp and viewed him as okay, this alternative that it's going to be there. Well, okay. So they get rid of Kevin McCarthy. Um, Steve Scalise is the next person up. But a lot of the people who are aligned with Jordan, they say, well, we're we're not going to support him, even though the majority of the caucus wants it. So then Jim Jordan, he becomes the person, okay, well, we're going to put him up. Well, a number of what I would say moderate Republicans, still solid conservatives, they say enough is enough. I mean, this guy has been a legislative, that's the phrase, terrorist for the, the last 15 years. He's held this this uh, caucus hostage time after time after time. He's put some of our political careers at risk because he's been so unwilling to compromise. And, and now he wants to be the caucus leader. And they're saying, no, we're not going to do it. So then the Jim Jordan crowd, what, what the strategy was, was, okay, if they don't want to support us voluntarily, we're going to bully these people, these 20 or 30 Republicans, we're going to bully them. And what we're going to do is we're going to have Sean Hannity call them out. And we're going to you know, go into the, the, the right wing you know universe and, and we're going to have people threaten to cut off money from them. And we're going to threaten to find people that are going to run primary opponents against these people unless they give in. And in general, not only did that not, that not get people to, to give in, but it cost them even more support because people were like, we're not going to be bullied by this guy. You know, we've had enough. So there were multiple votes. He doesn't have enough to become the speaker. And now he's apparently, apparently they had a, a secret ballot. And the conclusion was they're not going to get to a majority with him. So they've got to come up with a plan. I was going to say it's plan B, but they've got to come up with a plan D or E or F or G or whatever. So everybody's separating for the weekend. They'll come back Monday. They'll try to get a handle on this. But it's one of the classic examples of, of what goes around comes around. And you, you go to Washington, and for 15 years, you set yourself up, you make your reputation, you develop your national profile as being this guy that is willing to blow anything up, doesn't want to do any sort of compromise, doesn't care what the positions you take, um, how that impacts your colleagues, not just Democrats, but how it impacts your fellow Republicans. And then, you know, okay, well, I want to be the leader of the Republicans, and you're surprised that some people decide, hey, I, I remember all this you-know-what that you've pulled over the last 15 years. I'm sorry, I can't support you. It is a classic example of what goes around comes around. So what, Jeff, should happen? Well, here's what should happen. In a sane world, and we do not live in a sane world, I can see that. In a sane world, people should do some soul searching over the weekend, and they should recognize that we don't need a conservative firebrand. We don't need a squishy Republican liberal. What we need to do is find somebody who is mainstream, who appreciates that, you know, sometimes you do, in fact, have to uh, compromise. Now, I've been giving this lecture for the last couple of weeks. Politics, <clears throat> write it down, is the art of the possible. Politics is what can you get? What's the best you can get under the circumstances? 
In the case of Washington, D.C., you've got Democrats that control the U.S. Senate. You've got a Democrat who is the president, and you've got Republicans who control the House of Representatives, but only by an extremely narrowed margin. And if this foolishness continues to go on, you pretty much guarantee that by November of 2024, you're not going to have a Republican majority. So what you need to do is you say, look, here's what we need to do. We need to find somebody who can bring us all together. The people, that the handful, the Matt Gateses of the world, need to realize that they're not going to be able to get everything they want. And yeah, they can still they can still whine and moan about it, and they can still go on some of the really aggressive right-wing channels and you know, complain about stuff as a basis for raising money. But at the end of the day, they got to come together and get about the business of governing the country. So hopefully you will have... You will have the vast majority of the Republicans caucus will will kind of have that that come to you know who meeting over the weekend and will come back on Monday and say, we've got to stop this foolishness and, and we have to find somebody that we can all live with. And for the, the the gang of eight that overthrew Kevin McCarthy, maybe that means recognizing that this is what happens when you just launch into something. And it's like I say, it's ready, fire, aim. You know, you, you, okay, we've tossed out Kevin McCarthy, but we really don't have a workable plan moving forward. Maybe you just sit back over the weekend and say, okay, time to reassess this. You know, it wouldn't be the craziest thing to see Kevin McCarthy renominated. Don't know that he wants it. Who wants this job? But in the event, Jim Jordan down in flames, he is now withdrawn his efforts because not only didn't he have the votes in the beginning, but every time they'd have a ballot, he lost more votes. Not a recipe for success. When we come back, well, it's another end of an era. I'll explain. We'll discuss. This does not even sound good to me. Now, I, 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 like, I like the occasional beer, and, and I like all different types of beer. But one of the things that I have felt for the longest time is that pumpkin beer is a crime against nature. I mean, seriously, pumpkin beer, I, I, I appreciate that, you know, it's Thanksgiving time, it's the fall, you got lots of pump. I like pumpkin pie, I, I get it, but pumpkin beer, and I, I admit that I am probably swimming upstream with this one because people love it. There's a story in the local newspaper, listen to this, from, um, and they talk about places where you can find pumpkin beer around here. Why anybody would go out of their way to find and drink pumpkin beer is beyond me, but all right. Three Sheeps Brewing, based out of Sheboygan. I know the guys that do that. They are bringing back pumpkin spice veneration, an imperial pumpkin beer, 13.7% ABV. That's that's pretty darn high. Um, <laughs> made with, um, it's a Belgian-style beer made with pie spice and aged in a rye whiskey barrel. Okay, if there's anything that's less appealing to me than a pumpkin beer, it's a pumpkin beer aged in a rye barrel. It gets better. Draft and Vessel in um, on Oakland, they have a brandy barrel aged imperial pumpkin ale. So it's high alcohol pumpkin ale, and it's aged in a brandy barrel. So you got the taste of that. I mean, look, if I want pumpkin pie, I'm going to go with pumpkin pie. And if I want brandy, I'm going to drink brandy. Um, let's see. East Troy Brewing, they make their jack-o'-lantern, an amber ale that is like drinking a slice of pumpkin pie um, with brown sugar. Eww. I mean, why? if I want pumpkin pie, I'm going to eat pumpkin pie. Um, Foxtown Brewery up in Mequon, they've got pumpkin spice latte, which is a pumpkin and yam beer. It's a pumpkin and yam beer. 
if I was trying to imagine two things that I would find least appealing to put in a beer, it would be pumpkin and then yam, yam. Okay, um, they say it's not your basic batch of pumpkin beer, according to the beer's description, to which I would say, yeah, I get that. Indeed Brewing, which is on 2nd Street, they've got a tap room where they're serving pumpkin spice pistachio cream ale. Pumpkin spice pistachio cream ale. They take their tip, they take, they take their pistachio cream ale. So beer that tastes like pistachio, and then they add pumpkin to it. Um, I don't think so. Um, here's another place, Lion's Tail Brewing on North Avenue. They've got a pumpkin and yam beer as well. Um, I'm just sorry. Uh, here's one at Raised Grain. They make pumpkin, their beer, Snakes and Spiders, has pumpkin puree, puree. Um, okay, I just, I see all this, and I understand once again that I am swimming upstream on this, but I just... I just, I swear, I just do not get it. Uh, Night Owl Pumpkin Ale from a brewery in Seattle. 150 pounds of pumpkin in each batch plus pie spices. No, I just don't think so here. Um, and then I get, I understand that there's some people who are talking about how they love the, the pumpkin beer. Jeff, I'm not sure what's worse, pumpkin beer or peanut butter beer. Hmm. I, I think I, and again, I'm not anti-pumpkin. I'm not a pumpkin hater. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, you know, everywhere you go, everybody's got this pumpkin beer. And I, I talked to a couple brewers and they say, well, if we don't come out with pumpkin beer, we just get killed because, you know, all our competitors come out with pumpkin beer. I don't know. I'm telling you, you know, if you need stuff that there should be a law against, I think pumpkin beer might be a good start. When we come back, I don't know, get ready to say goodbye to an old favorite. Stick around. See, I just I don't get why we put flavors in things. I mean, I, I I was somewhere the other night, and somebody offered me, and I honestly don't remember where it was. They offered me a peach flavored bourbon. Now I am a bourbon drinker. I like bourbon. Why why you would put peach flavor in bourbon? I I just I I don't. Get and I, I, well, I mean, I understand that the marketing thing is okay. Maybe we can try to find people who just don't like to drink regular bourbon, and maybe we can that'll appeal to people. But I, I just, I don't like peach bourbon. Why would you do that? I mean, just don't mess with bourbon. Give me good bourbon, and, and you know, for people who like peach stuff, well, okay, make peach beer or something like that. I'm cool with it. All right. Um, I don't know if you saw the story about a week or so ago. Uh, Best Buy is phasing out its DVD and Blu-ray sales. You know, there you used to be, you could go into a Best Buy, a lot of stores, and they'd have huge racks where they'd have DVDs and they had Blu-ray discs, you know, with the different movies and things like that. Best Buy has announced that um, by early next year, they their stores are no longer going to sell DVD, DVD and Blu-ray discs. They want the they want the shelf space for for something else. But they also say that they're um, their, their volume, uh, people just aren't buying these anymore. And this, I think, goes along with what you saw with you know Netflix that uh, a couple months ago they stopped sending out. used to be that you could rent the DVDs. That's how Netflix got started. You could, like, rent the uh, DVDs through the mail, and they would send them to you, and then you would return them. So, I mean, you have more and more companies who are now saying, okay, we're, we are done 
with the physical DVDs, the physical Blu-ray discs, simply because this is not how people partake in the entertainment. Our number, only got a couple minutes because I need to let time for Pop Culture Corner, but our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Old National Bank talk and text line. All right, are you ready to see Blu-ray discs and DVDs go go the way of the dinosaur, or do you still watch them? 855-616-1620. In our house, for example, we have one Blu-ray disc player, and I have a box, a pretty big box of Blu-ray discs, maybe two boxes of Blu-ray discs that are in the basement, but they're in the basement. <laughs> And uh, uh, the Blu-ray disc player is hooked up to, you know, the in, in my den. It's hooked up. So, I mean, theoretically, I know how to access it. And if I wanted to watch one of the, those movies, I could. I cannot tell you. I do not remember, though, the last time that I actually watched one of these various movies that I purchased over the years because there, there's so much new content that's out there. And generally speaking, if, if I want to watch a movie, and they're not all available in streaming, I get it, but generally speaking, if I want to watch a movie between Netflix and Hulu and all these other things, they're there. I honest to goodness do not remember the last time I watched a Blu-ray disc, and I certainly don't remember the last time I purchased one. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right. these going, is, is, Has technology made these things obsolete just like technology made 8-track players obsolete? Just like technology made 45 RPM records obsolete. I was going to say the 33 and a third records. I mean, vinyl is making a comeback a little bit, but it's still a niche thing. Just like technology got rid of the 8-track players. Just like technology did away with cassette tapes. Just like, you know, CD players. Every car used to have a CD player in it. Good luck finding a new car with that in it now. 855-616-1620. All right, Best Buy says we're done. Best Buy says we're done. Netflix says we're done. All right. Is it time to write the epitaph for Blu-ray discs and DVDs? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Jeff and Fox Point. Jeff, you're first. Hello. Hi, Jeff. I just watched a Blu-ray of the original Nightmare on Elm Street last night, and I'm going to hold on to my Blu-ray library as long as possible because I like having the physical items and... It helps me um, limit the amount of streaming services that I use that can really add up money-wise. Um, yeah, I, I guess. Do when's the last time you purchased a new Blu-ray disc? Oh, that is a really good question. I think I bought um, the movie Cobweb on Blu-ray about like two weeks ago, okay. and I ordered it from Amazon. No, I didn't order it from one of these other places. Okay, no, thanks. Well, that that was at least two weeks. I thought you were going to tell me, you know, ah, it might have been kind of like when I say, oh, we love the domes. When did the last time you went to the domes? Well, I don't know. I took my kid on a field trip. Well, you know, when he was in fifth grade. Well, how old's your kid now? Forty. You know, this kind of thing. And, and again, I'm not it. Look, I, I Blu-ray discs. I mean, I, I I have a ton of them and I like the stuff because a lot of the Blu-ray discs, you know, have features. You watch the movie and then they've got director's interviews and they've got outtakes and things like that. So I, I, I like it, but it's just it's just not convenient anymore. And, and in all honesty, I, I I don't I honestly don't remember the last time I, I bought a Blu-ray disc. It, it's got to be years. Just got to be years. Let's talk to Debbie in Oak Creek. Hi, Debbie. You're in WTMJ. Hi, listen, how, why are you so 
inconvenient or what do you find that you can't? They're out there all over the place. Blu-ray discs, and especially children's movies like my grandson. Mm -hmm. He's a fan of Scooby-Doo, and you can't see those anywhere else. Maybe one here and there, but he's got the whole collection of them. And Mm -hmm. I have a ton of movies that I, I love that I like to watch more than once that I can't find on streaming. Do you still buy them? Oh, yes. I have a ton of them. And you still can buy them all over the place. Oh, oh yeah. Just not at Best Buy anymore after the holidays. And, you know, not through Netflix and stuff. Yeah. Well, I I know there's a lot of things, but if it's something I really like, I like to watch it more than once. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. Well, I mean, I'm the guy that, that watches movies 10, 15, 20 times. I'm the one that my wife will walk in and say, Okay, how many times have you seen this one? And I don't know, fifteen or twenty times. Yeah, so I, I'm like that, and I understand that's the appeal. I'm just saying that this is this is one where the and I haven't gotten rid of them. I haven't taken them all to you know goodwill or anything. But I, I have to admit, I, I haven't. I don't remember the last time I put a Blu-ray disc in. Now I do understand also. By the way, if you've got kids or grandkids and you've got the kids' movies and they want to, they're going to watch Scooby-Doo or they're going to watch Winnie the Pooh or they're going to watch whatever this is, you know, time after time after time. But right then you've got the appeal. You just pop the disc in and then you know they, they occupy themselves. So I'm not calling for the elimination of them. I am saying that at least the marketplace right now is saying there's not a great future in them. If you want to buy them from D, from Best Buy, though, you, you have until pretty much the beginning of next year. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, it is that time of the week. Pop Culture Corner, right around the corner. Gather round, all. It's time for Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Time to put aside the heavy lifting and have a good time at the old National Bank talking text line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank, get old. Now, here's Jeff Wagner. One of our texters says, discs are good when your internet goes down for days. That That is true. About two weeks ago, the 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 spectrum box that powers the, the cable internet in our in our the cul-de-sac I live on went down, so so nobody had service for about it took about a day to get it back up, and it I you know I, I did not go down, but that if that had lasted much longer, I would have gone down to the Blu-ray disc thing, and I, I would have broken that out and done that. There's no question about it. Um, you know, so, somebody else is talking about how they they have all these they've got all these different things that are going on there. They've got uh, that um, they've got eight tracks, and they uh, I own multiple. Totally functional cassette, VHS, CD, DVD, and Blu-ray players and recorders. I also have a library of cassette music, VHS texts, music CDs, DVDs, and a few Blu-ray discs. I'm thinking I should donate it all to a pop culture media history museum. To which my response was, and I've told this story before, for years and years, I resisted the siren song of getting a new uh, phone. And so uh, so finally, my wife just, just... verbally abused me into it. I got tired of being mocked by everybody, but I had an iPhone 5S, X, 5S. So I go to the Apple store, I show the guy my phone, and I think he kind of like wants to bring over all the other salespeople to look because I'm the guy with the 5S. I said, hey, is there any trade-in value for this? He said, donate it to a museum. <laughs> I said, okay, thank you, but uh, what, what can you say? Time moves on. All right, this is, like the big voice guy says, this is Pop Culture Corner. We do this every week. It's our chance to stop talking about all the serious stuff that goes on and have a little bit of fun as we go into the good weekend. It is brought to you by Palermo's Pizza. We have our Palermo's Pizza prize package, 
to give away. Uh, it's a coupon good for two pizzas and a pizza cutter and some other stuff as well. You can only get this, as far as I know, you can only get this pizza cutter through this. It is awarded exclusively in the discretion of my producer. Samantha, you're going to do this for one more time before you bail on me? Okay. Samantha is moving on to, I would say, bigger and better things. I don't know. She's going to be producing the afternoon show after this, but that's that's okay. You will be missed. You will be missed. That's one of the reasons I, I found out Samantha was leaving. I said, I'm going to retire. You know, that's that's it. We're wrapping up 25 years. It's all my producer Samantha's fault. She's going to go work for John McCure, and that's okay. All right, I'm done with this. In any event, it's exclusively in her discretion, one of our callers. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Let me get right to this. 50 years ago this month, October 5th of 1973, to be precise, Elton John released his seventh studio album, which was, by the way, um, and remains to this day, I believe, his biggest and most popular album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And if you were, if you were a child or a teen or, I don't know, into pop music in 1973, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road was one of these sort of revolutionary um, revolutionary albums. It, it, whether it was words or lyrics, um, whether it was the music, um, it really, it was one of those where it, it just, it was one of these incredibly successful things where you had all the ballads that were out there. There were rockers and there were things like that. Plus you had the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road itself, which was just an, an absolutely amazing song. Um, as a matter of fact, um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is going to be um, well. They're going to be you know bringing out I guess like an, a a new deluxe edition that's going to be coming out relatively soon. But it, it turns fifty, and it was one of these sort of defining albums. And to this day, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road remains many people's favorite album. It is their ultimate album. So in reference and in deference and in respect to 50 years of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, we're going to do a music topic today, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. You get one album, your one album, your favorite album of all time. If you're in that situation where it's you and the desert island and you've got the battery-powered charger that runs on solar stuff, and you get one album to take with you. You're on Survivor. You get that one album. What is your album going to be? Your favorite album of all time. 855-616-1620. And you can take it on vinyl as far as I'm concerned or on like a CD or on a cassette um, or on an eight-track tape. They might have still even been around then. All right, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road turns 50. If your favorite album of all time isn't that, what is it? 855-616-1620. Back in a moment. It's pop culture time. Now back to Take Your Calls. Here's Jeff Wagner. Boy, this is taking me down memory lane. One of our uh, John and Berling texts. John, my John says my favorite album of all time is John Prine's "Sweet Revenge." I'm a huge fan of John Prine. He passed away a couple of years ago, way too soon. And uh, "Sweet," I said that "Sweet Revenge" was the first. That was the first John Prine album I bought. Um, I, I got turned on to John Prine by a guy who 
um, from Marshall University in West Virginia who was playing John Prine songs. And it's like, wow, okay. And then I had to buy up everything and followed his career. Okay, 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Matt in Watertown. Matt, you're first. Hello. Hi, you got me? I got you. You're on. Hello? Uh, you're, go ahead. Okay. Uh, okay, Pink Floyd, The Wall. <laughs> 1973, October 5th, that was my 13th birthday when that came out. Okay. And so a little bit later, I was a little bit older when, when I got in more into music. Oh, yeah. It, it's, um, you know, thank, thanks for calling. The reason, the reason that one has, I'm going to tell the story really, really quickly. Um, when I was in law school, my buddy and I, Steve, we, we lived in this, um, we lived in this condo complex off of 60th and, and Brown Deer. And the, the guys who lived next door to us, there were, nobody really lived there. So they got a bunch of people who worked at this railroad, and they decided rather than going to bars after second shift, it would be cheaper to rent a place for parties. And so they rented a place for parties. And so whenever second shift ended, 11, 11.30, all these people used to descend, and they would crank up Pink Floyd the Wall with the helicopter sound that starts at the beginning, wake us up at like it's 1 in the morning. I'm in law school. It's like, oh, for God's sake. So can't think of – I cannot – think of Pink Floyd the Wall without thinking of that particular tune. Let's talk to Chris in Elm Grove. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. <laughs> uh, my favorite album would be Supertramp, Reference in America. Okay, a lot of people, you know, it's funny, a lot of people are, are saying that. Why, why do you like that one so much? Why is that your one album? I guess it just brings me back to high school, my yeah. 72 Dodge Charger, my 8-track player, and <laughs> life was good. <laughs> You know, isn't it amazing? You know, we, we say, Chris, we say eight-track players, and, and people just have no idea what, what an eight-track player is or why anybody would listen to something on an eight-track. Yeah. Life was simple then. It, it Thank was. You. Thanks for your call. I mean, these eight-track players, they're, they're kind of like the old cartridges that we used to have commercials on and stuff here at the radio station but but they'd they'd cut out in the middle of the song in in the in the it's not like at the end of a song they'd automatically change track they change from tracks right in the middle of the song um but i mean the the sound quality they'd argue was superior to um they'd argue that the superior the sound quality was superior i i don't know about that pat in oak creek pat you're on wtmj hello oh i'm sorry bill in uh bill you're on wtmj hello Jeff, it's um, before I tell you my album, um, that uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, I was in eighth or ninth grade, and that's the reason that girl went out with me, because I knew about that song. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, All see, right, you, and, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Bill, whatever it takes to get a date when you're like in, in high school or in middle school, I'm all in favor of that. That's great. <laughs> I hear that song. I still think about her. All right, I got another super trap. Crime of the century. Yeah, yeah. I um... and I was in college. So I go from eighth or ninth grade. Now I'm in college, and I remember this song or that whole album. You know. Oh yeah, that, that, thanks. You got, you got to go for that. When I was in college, if you wanted to, if you you wanted to get dates, uh, it was Carol um, Carol King's Tapestry. You know, even if you didn't like it, you had to pretend that you liked it because that's that's just what you had to do. Let's talk to Pat in Oak Creek. Pat, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Pat. Go ahead. My favorite album would be Joshua Tree by U2. U2. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, um, 
you two for that uh, that period of time when when they were just big in the like nineties and stuff that this the type of things that they were producing was just absolutely amazing and Joshua Tree I would agree I think I, I think it's certainly their best album and it's one that's that's timeless it stands up really well. Yes, I'm on my way to Vegas to see them oh. at the Sphere. Okay, I, all right. I was going to ask that because um, I, I have I have a couple friends who just either are going to Vegas or getting back from Vegas, and and they've they've been in the Sphere, but they haven't seen you too. I, I'm told it is absolutely spectacular. I'm sure it's going to be a great show. Oh, I sure hope so. Can Can I ask you a tough question? Can 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 I ask you how much the tickets cost? Oh, about four hundred apiece. <laughs> well, it, it it better be a good show. <laughs> Beth, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, Beth, Beth, thanks for calling. It, it it better it better be a good show. No question about that. Let's talk for. Well, let's get. I I understand it, and the, the sphere is supposed to be really cool. Doug in Muskego. Doug, you're on WTMJ. How you doing, Jeff? I'm good, thanks. For me, it, I I stayed with the 1973. It's Dark Side of the Moon. Wouldn't, okay. Wouldn't album came out hey tell me what you sold but i remember my brother having it on uh vinyl okay so your brother your brother got you turned on to that and see that's what older brothers are for they're supposed to help you cultivate your musical taste i my my brother would tell you i did that no um doug you are the winner dark side of the moon comes through so you win our palermo's pizza prize package for today so have a couple pizzas on wtmj okay oh thank you Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let's sneak in one more call here. I want to talk to Karen in Germantown. Karen, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Well, hi there. How are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, your one favorite album of all time. I know you burst my bubble. It was Carol King Tapestry. (laughs) I'm not saying I didn't like it. I'm just saying that if you were in college when I was in college, all the girls liked it, and so if you wanted to get dates, you had to, you had to like it or pretend to like it. And there's a lot of great songs on that album. There's one after another. I look for an album to give me just song after song after song that I know. The other one would be the Beatles' Rubber Soul. Yeah, Rubber Soul was good. I'm trying to think of Carol, and I, I, I'm trying to think of, of Tapestry. Um, you feel the earth move under my feet. I remember that that was one. Um, yeah, well, that, that, that was the one. Yeah, I just, I'm, no, thanks. It's funny that this is, this is bringing back memories of, um, a, a gal I dated in college, and I can remember that, 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 that record. Yes, it was a record. The thing was always on. Um, always on, and it was played. We'd play it over and over again. That and um, oh my God, I'm embarrassed to admit this. Neil Diamond's Hot August Night, like a double record. No, and if if you wanted that, that was it. If you if you wanted to make time with the ladies back when I was in college, Neil Diamond, Hot August Night, and Carol King's Tapestry. And and look, and I I, I was a bit of a rocker and stuff, but I, I was I, I was good at faking it because I mean I like this girl, no question about it. Like this girl, she was studying to be a medical te- medical technologist. I let her practice drawing blood on me. Now it didn't work out ultimately, but you know what can you say? She drew blood. And, you know, we'd listen to Neil Diamond, we'd listen to Carol, uh, you know, uh, we'd listen to Carol King and Tapestry. <sighs> Things you do in college for love. All right, when we come back, John McCure, Brian Goddard, remember him? Yeah, he's that TV guy, or the former TV guy. We'll find out what they have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Do not go anywhere, please.